So I was having a conversation this week with a friend of mine, and I just got done with a, a speaking engagement on Friday, and she came up to me, and she was talking to me about, about my talk and some things that I said, and, and she said, I really wish that my son was able to hear what you just said, because he's at a point in his life where he has to make some decisions, and he's a, a very bright kid and, and a godly kid, as much as, or young man, as much as I can tell, and he actually is just getting ready to get out of college, and you know, in, in any time, if you've gone through this, someone, if you're either getting ready to, uh, to, to go into the real world after high school, or if you're about to leave college, there's so much pressure that's put on you to make the right decision. So people say, and they, I, I believe they mean well, and they say, well, what are you going to do after, you know, after high school? Or what are you going to do after college? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And it's this pressure that you have to have the rest of your life mapped out right now, and you also have to say it in such uh, in such a way that's like one sentence, you know, it's like, this is it. So everybody would just be proud of you. Say, oh, that's great. I'm so, so proud of you. This is going to turn out great. In this instance, uh, my friend is coming to me. She says, he's, he's getting ready to leave college, and yet he has some tough decisions that he needs to make. And, he, and I'm just not sure that he, that he knows what it is that he's supposed to do. And because of this, this transition, there's like so much pressure that's put on him right now to make these decisions. I believe there's so many times in life where we have difficult decisions that we have to make, especially if, if they're like far-reaching decisions, meaning that it's, it sets a trajectory. I mean, any time that you have a moment in your life to where you're put at the crossroads where like you have to choose this or this, it's daunting at times, isn't it? It's like, well, if I, I don't want to make the wrong decision and even, you know, I don't want to like go up the road and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did this. This is the wrong thing. And then you tend to doubt any decision you ever make again. You don't want to do that, but yet you also don't want to just flippantly make a decision. And decisions are hard, especially if they have far-reaching implications and especially if they're complicated. Complicated like you're hungry, and your appetite is saying red lobster. Your bank account is saying ramen noodles at the house. And the rest of your family says socheros. Like, what do you do? Because you either honor your appetite, and you're like, ah, we'll figure it out somewhere along the road. I'm just going to get get whatever at, at Red Lobster, or you honor your bank account, which then you tend to feel like you're going to let down everybody else, including yourself, because then you're actually going to do, you're going to do without something that you thought you really wanted, or if you pick anything else other than Sacheros and the rest of your family says Sacheros, then you feel like you let everybody down. See, I think when it comes down to decisions, and the reason why they're hard is because ultimately it can be broken down into three different levels. First level is this, decisions... Um, they become difficult when decisions that you know that will affect other people. Anytime, if you're in any sphere of leadership, if you're a parent, you know what this is because you have to make decisions and those decisions affect other people. And decisions are, are easy for some people and they're really hard for other people. And you want to honor God, and yet you want to honor everyone else, and yet you still, in some way, probably want to do what you want to do. And like very few times in life do all three of those things line up. So decisions become difficult when they affect other people. 
If it's just you, it's like, oh, I can get myself out of this. But if it's a whole family, okay, and I put all of us into this, and now I have to figure out, at least the temptation is to think that I have to figure out how to get us out of it. The second thing here is decisions when you know others have strong opinions. Making a decision when you know that other people have strong opinions, which means that you're being led to make this decision, but you already know that when you make this decision, other people have opinions formed against your decision. That's not easy, is it? Especially if you're in a a situation to where you really believe and you're stepping out on faith where you have to make a decision. Uh, for the betterment of your family, or, or maybe even standing like a, a student or, or you know, a godly young man or woman who has to stand against their ungodly parents and say, I'm not going to live like you live anymore. I'm going to live like Jesus wants me to live. And like that decision or that continual decision is difficult because in that you know that they have strong opinions and you know that their opinions are absolutely against the decisions that you're being led to make. That's a, that's a tough spot to be in. Or a decision, and this to me is one of the most aggravating, is the decisions that affect someone, but they will not really tell you how they feel about it. So it's like, you've been led to make this decision, right? Some, this is probably going to happen after you leave church today, by the way, when you get ready to go eat, because this talk's all about eating, actually. That's, it's all about eating. Um, but... Like, you're going to go, many of you are going to leave here, and you're going to go, and you're going to get in the car, and you're going to say, what do you want to eat? And, and then they're going to look around and say, what do you want to eat? Oh, I don't care. Oh, what do you want? I don't care. Well, I don't care. Until someone starts throwing out suggestions, and you're like, no, nah, really, I'm not really hungry for chicken. <laughs> what about a burger? No, I'm not really feeling burgers either. What about, like, home style? No, I'm not really into that either. Apparently, you have some opinions about it. You just didn't share it. And yet, and sometimes it's this way in our vehicle as we leave here, and maybe for yours, it's a point of contention. And then you're just like, I, I know if I make this decision that it's going to affect everybody else if I'm led to make this decision. And yet, I know other people have feelings about it, but if they don't share it, it's kind of like, oh, then what do you do? And then it's difficult, right? And then, you, and then you tend to, and I'll tell you just what I tend to do in these situations, I tend to say, I don't want to make a decision at all. But yes, somebody has to make the decision. Again, it's all about eating, so we're eating. Anyway, sometimes we have a culmination of all three of these things, and that's actually what the, the person we're going to dig into today, we're really going to look at uh, a few names in the Scriptures as, as you go to uh, Genesis 22, and, and in these names, there's going to be some familiarity with this story. Again, Genesis 22, and there's, if you've been around church for a while, there's some familiarity with what's, what's going to happen in this passage, but one of the things that we do when we get to this passage, when it talks about Abraham, that's one of the names, we're going to talk about the name Isaac, um, and then really we're going to talk about the God who provides here at the latter part of my talk. But before we even get into this passage, I, want to, I just want to tease up what's, what's happening even before this chapter. The chapter preceding this, it tells a storyline about how Abraham and Sarah, they had decided that, that they were... Um, that they were essentially were just going to kick Hagar and Ishmael out of their home. Now, Hagar and Ishmael was 
that was a way out for Sarah to have a child because years prior to this, Sarah was barren. She couldn't have a child, so she grew impatient. She went and talked to her husband, who was incredibly passive at the time, and she said, hey, I have this great idea. Why don't you just impregnate Hagar, and then she can have your child because, you know, God's just not delivering on his promises. We're not, we're not having these, these children like God said, so how about we just take matters under our own hands, and then you can have a child through Hagar, and then we'll get this thing started. And he didn't stand up. He didn't lead his home well. He didn't lead her well. He just said, hmm, great idea. And he followed through with it. And Hagar had a child, and the child's name was Ishmael. And then years later, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah would have the promised child, Isaac. And now they're trying to live together in some sense. And in chapter 21, just before this, the, those two families come to a head. And Sarah, again, she has this bright idea, not God's idea, I don't believe. But God, God absolutely, He allowed it to happen. I guess whether or not it was God's idea, I'm not God, but God allowed it to happen. But in this moment, um, Sarah has this idea, why don't we just kick Hagar and Ishmael out? I mean, after all, Ishmael is, is causing issues with Isaac, and now he's picking on Isaac, so if we could just kick them out, our problems would be solved. So again, Abraham, he's not leading her well, not leading his family well. He just says, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that. So kicks him out. So then Hagar with, her, with Ishmael are sent out into the wilderness, sent out with just a little bit of food and a little bit of water. Imagine how desperate they would have been. So he, uh, they, excuse me, go out into the wilderness and as they're out in the wilderness, it's, it's desperate times for them. And I don't even know what would be going through her mind, but Hagar sets the baby Ishmael down like under a bush and sets him down, and then she walks like paces away. And, and to me, I think she's just gotten to the end of herself. She's like, I just can't stand to, I, I can't stand to, to watch my son die. So as she's paces away from him, she hears him crying and hears him crying and hears him crying. Imagine this mother's. So he's away, distraught. God reveals something to her that God has a way out for both of them. She goes back to him and God gives him a promise that, that he too will bring up a nation. And it will be the Arab nation, actually, will come through his line. And they, they would go on their merry way. And it would seem like that, because what we're going to read in just a minute, that these two things are disconnected, but they're absolutely connected. Because what was so easy, it seems like anyway, so easy for Abraham and Sarah, specifically Abraham, to just discard what was his first son, now becomes something that he has to wrestle with, what, what, what God asked for him with Isaac. Let's go to verse 1, chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, 
Then God said, take your son, your only son. I think this is interesting because certainly this is not his only son. His other son at this time was Ishmael, except they weren't there. Now, Ishmael wasn't the promised son, so maybe that's the reason why. But I also believe there's another reason why, which we're going to get to at the end of this talk. Why that wording is there, your only son Isaac, whom I love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he, sent out, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Notice this. You may want to underline this or, or highlight this in your Bible if you do so. We will worship, then we will come back to you. That was verse 5. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, in a questioning way, Yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. This testing that was being brought upon Abraham was the thing that God was using to reveal to Abraham what was truly at the center of his life. Because everything up till this point what was at the center of Abraham's life was either Sarah, Sarah's wishes, his passivity, or his belief that he just had to have a lot of kids. So his idea of family was at the center, and now God is inviting this test into his life to say, am I going to be at the center of your life? Am I going to be everything to you? Are you going to cling to either the promises that I gave you and not to the promise giver or... Are you going to cling to Sarah or some perfect ideal of family that you have conjured up in your mind? But he's clearly being tested. In Leviticus 18, 21 and Deuteronomy 12, 31, these will not be on the screen. I'm not going to read the passages. I'm just letting you know the sources. Leviticus 18, 21, Deuteronomy 12, 31. Um, that's when God clearly prohibits human sacrifice. So God is not for human sacrifice. As a matter of fact, when the other, the other people groups or tribes, if you will, were around, in the Old Testament, when they were around God's people, the, a lot of those tribes actually performed human sacrifice. And God was so against that, and He was actually against those people because they didn't value life. So God is not for human sacrifice. But did you see in verse 5 what I pointed out to you? There's this hint that maybe Abraham knew all along that God was going to provide a way out. There was this hint all along, and you see it in verse 5, to where God was either going to potentially take Isaac's life, but he was going to bring him back and resurrect him, or 
that there was just going to be another way that, that Abraham didn't see. Because what, what we can read together in verse 5 is this. It says his response to his servants, he says, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then, what's the next word? We will come back to you. So we will come back to you. So apparently there's, there's this climb, this, this mountain climbing that they're doing. And God is directing their steps. And God's then revealing where it is that the sacrifice is supposed to be held. So he gives the, the, the news to the servants, says, we're going to go over here, but I believe we're going to return. God tested Abraham. And I also want you to know that Abraham was, was not a perfect man. He was a deeply flawed man. He was also a man of faith. His, his name is written in, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. We're going to get there in a minute. But he's a deeply flawed man, and he is a man who's not leading his home. He's not leading his wife. Whatever the whims and wishes that Sarah wanted is what he bowed down to. And men are supposed to lead their home. They're supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificing, giving for for their wives and their families, sacrificially living to lift up their family, but yet there's an area of responsibility, of leadership over the home, and he's just abdicating, he's giving away this leadership. And God is then testing him to see what, what Abram is made of and what he's made of now. This, this testing has a couple different elements to it, and I think one of the elements of testing that we see in Abraham's life is a very similar testing to what we will endure in ours. If you're a person of faith, there's going to be the testing, and Abraham's testing was against his common sense. It was, it was just against his common sense. Everything about him was, was leading him to say, I shouldn't go do this. So his testing was against his common sense. We can all agree that it's not common sense that, that we would just take the life of a child, right? Of course. That's just not common sense. And so Abram's testing was against his common sense. And when it comes down to, to our individual testing with, with where we are, with where God wants to take us, please listen to me. This is important. Somebody needs to hear this. It, when it comes down to testing from where you are to where God wants you to be, sometimes there's going to be times where it just doesn't make sense, where the numbers just don't add up, the conversations don't add up, the diploma doesn't add up, the experience doesn't add up, and God just wants to take you from here to there, and He wants you to walk by faith. And He wants you to go out of your common sense and just walk by faith. There are times where that's going to happen. That you just don't live by numbers. The Scriptures don't say we live by numbers. It says we live by what? Faith. It's not blind faith. It means that there's not some sort of evidence. It's not, we just live our life, well, God said, God said, God said. But yet, there are times in, in the point of testing in this Christian walk that it is indeed a walk where God is leading us and, and we walk and we follow after Him and sometimes it goes against our common sense. Another line of testing we see is the testing was against His human affection. I mean, He loved His Son. He loved Him. 
every, every part of his being would have been at odds with this, this radical form of obedience. I believe this is one of the most radical forms of obedience that, have captured, that, that were captured in any sort of history book or, or any type of real story outside of some made-up Hollywood thing. I mean, this testing was against human affection. So much so that as soon as we read that, and you talk about where he, he literally walked up there with his son and then he was able to, he, he pulled the knife out like he was getting ready to take his son's life. Every part of us, when we're reading that, maybe, maybe today, maybe it was the first time you read it, you were like, <gasps> and your body tenses up a little bit, like, oh my goodness. And the reason why is because you value life. And the reason why you value life is because that's something God, that, that God has put in you. We should value life. If we don't value life, that means something's fractured in our soul. We should value life. And God has, this, God has woven us together with this idea of a human affection. That all of us have feelings and emotions and longings and, and love. And we, we desire to be nurtured and cared for and provided for and protected. All of us do. So his testing was against his human affection because he loved his son in the way that God ordained it. And I hope that it never happens for any of us is to say, do you trust me enough to put that human affection to the test? So Abram's testing was against his common sense. It was against his human affection. Then also it was against his lifelong ambition. Because he had wanted children, God had told them, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that you are going to become a great nation. And that through you, there's going to be so many kids and just a nation, a great nation of people. But they weren't seeing it. So he still had this ambition that this was going to happen. This is still going to happen. And that's something that God put in him and told him. So now, if he were to go and he were to give up the life of his only son... The temptation, the testing rather, in this moment would lead you to say, do I have to give up all of my lifelong ambitions? And I can't, I can't sugarcoat this next part. There are times in a, in a walk of faith where you have to surrender your lifelong ambitions to follow Jesus. There are times where you have to give up your lifelong ambitions to follow Jesus. There are times to where maybe you, you don't have a lot of lifelong ambitions and, and following becomes easier in that way, but there are, there are other times where your faith is going to be tested through your lifelong ambitions of the things that you really, really, really want to do. And God says, I know that's what you really want to do, but I've got something better for you. I've got something better for you than that. Through the conversations I've had with this passage in the past, it's, it's easy to, to contrive this narrative in our mind that God is the bad guy. And that, that Abraham didn't do anything wrong. And that Abraham and Isaac were the, they were the innocent people in this. And that, that God was the, he was the one who was going against them. And we have to be careful when we say things like this. Well, why would God or how could God? Or why would God or how could God in such a way to accuse God of doing something wrong? That's a very dangerous and precarious place to be when we stand at odds with God. 
And maybe the reason why, why we were challenged in these areas is because it stands because there's a testing that's taking place against our lifelong ambitions or our affections. So we have to be careful when we say things like this. Well, why would God or how could God? When we do so in a way that accuses God of doing something wrong. So his testing was not only personal, it was also spiritual. And I want to put this scripture from Hebrews 11. It'll be on the screen for you. And this is what it says. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So it's a spiritual testing as well. Now let's go into uh, the rest of this passage, starting in verse 13 through verse 18. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. I want to make this clear. God didn't want Isaac's life. He wanted Abraham's surrender. God didn't want Isaac's life. He wanted Abraham's surrender. And God wants our surrender. Our continual surrender. To enter into a salvation relationship with God, if you will. As God draws and God reveals and God draws uh, you to himself just so you can actually have faith, what's required on our end is surrender, uh, just a recognition of our powerless, powerlessness before God so that we would never be right with God on our own, that only through Jesus can we be made right, and all we do is surrender, but yet, here's the thing, here's the important part. We surrender to receive salvation, but also we continually surrender as part of God's sanctification. We continually surrender. Sanctification means being set apart. As the work of God, after salvation, God continually works in a believer's life, and it takes continual surrender. And there's testing there, and there, there should be obedience there. And these things are, the, are, are just things that are necessary for us to become who it is that God wants us to become. For Abraham to be the man that God was wanting him to become, he had to endure this testing. If he hadn't endured the testing, then Abraham wouldn't have, have known God in the most intimate way that he did. And also... Maybe he would have followed suit with everything that he had done before that. Or he just bowed down to Sarah's wishes and whatever, whatever she said, he did. 
God didn't want Isaac's life. He could have taken Isaac's life. He could have taken that in a thousand different ways. He wanted Abraham's surrender, and he wants ours as well. We should expect obedience to create a struggle with something that we want or desire. We should expect this. This is the reason why uh, we, we commune with God and we walk in fellowship with God and we, we connect with God and we dwell in the presence of God. This is the reason why we talk about spiritual formation. This is the reason why we talk about the spiritual disciplines. This, this is the reason why we talk about everything that you do forms you to become something or to become someone. And yet all of these things are important. All of these things make it easier for us to obey. They are tools that God allows us to have to help us to obey because we can expect obedience to, be a, to, to create a struggle in us with something that we want or something that we desire. And the reason why we want and we desire that gets in the way of obedience is because of our flesh. It's because we have a fallen nature. This is the reason why we have to have the posture of surrender. This is the reason why when you feel like you've been kicked by you've been kicked in the faith and you feel like God's testing you and you're going through this thing, this is the reason why we need to lean into God and not away from God. Trusting that God has something for you. He's not trying to keep you from something. He's trying to trying to bring you to something that's better than even what you and I can desire. If we could hold your place in Genesis 22, and then go to the right in your Bible into Romans 5. We're going to look at six or so verses. Romans 5, verse 1. It begins with the word therefore, and, and I'm not going to be able to give you the, the full run of this. It's kind of complicated. It's really interesting, though, because the previous chapter, in chapter 4, the heading in my Bible says, Abraham justified by faith. So connecting um, what we've just talked about with how he was justified by faith, and now we're going to see the word therefore connecting these two ideas. So maybe you want to go into that uh, and read chapter 4, and he's just talking about how to be, how he was justified by faith, although he was a man under the law. Verse 1 says this, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that means believers, Christians, people who are born again, we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, therefore, that you, you have a salvation that is, uh, that you, you have a righteousness and a salvation that is by faith, and faith that it was on offer from God, by God, and we, we receive that by, by surrender. He says, because of that, therefore, then since we have been justified, you've been declared not guilty through faith. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus so he says, this is your position. If you are a person who is in Christ, this is your position. And I will go a step further and say this. And if that's your position, you nor anyone else can take you from it. 
That's your position in Christ. Because that's your, the position of which you stand is in Christ Jesus, is what it says in the passage. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That being through Jesus. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we talk about your position, but now we're going to talk about what it looks like in real life. Go to verse 3 if you would. He says, not only so, he says, oh, I'm not done yet. I just talked about your position in Christ, which in other words, he's saying, this is your position. This is the idea of being justified, declared not guilty before God. This is salvation. He says, I just talked about the basis of your salvation, and this is what you stand upon. But notice what he says in verse 3. Not only so, in other words, I'm not finished. But we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, so not only so, then now you've had your salvation, you've been declared not guilty of your sins, it came through surrender, giving your life to Jesus, the, the, the element of faith was a gift from God, you received that. He says, now we're not stopping, not only so, he says, now there's a reason why you're going to be tested. There's a reason why you're going to be tested. Because God's not done with you. This testing, the reason why we may be kicked in the faith is because God is continually churning something in us. He's trying to help us. Back to the passage. Let's see what it is again. Verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. So when we suffer, when we go through times of testing, where we feel like we've been kicked in the faith, like we have nothing, nothing left but God, that teaches us perseverance. It teaches us to hold on to God. It teaches us that God is reliable. It teaches us that God is provider. It teaches us that he is, our, that he is our righteousness, that he is our guide, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, that he is the way and the truth and the life. All of this draws us to God, to persevere with God, not away from God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Back to the passage. The suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. And why character? Because your character, until the time we die, our character is continually being chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. Just like Abraham's character was being chipped away. The testing of Abraham when he brought Isaac up onto that, up onto that mountaintop to offer Isaac was a chipping away at his character because God wanted to take him someplace that he was unwilling to go in that moment unless his character changed. God does the same thing with his kids today. You, you should not expect to be this, in the same place in 10 years as what you are right now. If you are, that means you're walking in disobedience. God is continually moving, changing, and shaping his kids to be more like him and to do more things that require our surrender and our willing obedience. So the suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And I'm so thankful that the next sentence is there, and it says, and hope does not disappoint us. 
And hope is the, is the reality of, of an eternity with God forever in heaven with Him. The belief and knowledge that, that, this, that this earth is not going to exist forever. And that there's going to be a day where we breathe our last in everything that we've hoped for, everything that we've dreamt of, everything that we, we looked at the Scriptures and we said, I wonder what it's going to look like. It's all going to be fulfilled. Just like that. And Paul says, and this hope does not disappoint us. Verse 6 says this, you see at just the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's go back to our passage in verse 14. We're going to see something incredible about God. We're going to see in verse 14 that God is the God who provides. That's what that passage said, reading through verse 18 again. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. There was a lot that was hinging on this obedience. But what he saw and what I want to bring to your attention and what the Jewish people separate or celebrate, excuse me, is the God who provides. And they would, they would recognize God because of this passage, passage and some others as God being Jehovah Jireh. The God who provides. That even when, it, even when it looks bleak, even when you don't have an answer, God has an answer. Even when you don't have a resource, God has a resource. Even when you're putting in the most unthinkable situation where you have to make a decision that God provides. And while God provides all of, of our needs, but also... God provided that sacrificial lamb and that God still provides that sacrificial lamb for you and I today. There's a passage I want to read from Matthew 3, 16 and 17. It says this. But indeed, this is what the Father did with His Son, Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, He went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on Him. And this is what the passage says. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. The father is identifying the son publicly. He's saying, this is, this is my son. This is the promised one. He's here. And yet, after John the Baptist had already identified Jesus as the the Son of God. See, this is interesting because he had already identified Jesus as being the Son of God. In John 1.29, this is what John the Baptist said. He says, when he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus stand, passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He just saw him walking by. John the Baptist had this like special thing with God. Amazing, amazing man of God. Incredible diet too but just incredible man of God. 
and, and, just, and God just revealed to him, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, the sin of the world. He says, look, that's the Lamb. Jesus would later say in John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, that being the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me. He continues, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. As Jesus continues on in his life, and now we get to the, the Passion Week, until the, the final moments, Jesus said this in Luke twenty two forty two, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So now Jesus had been identified publicly that he was the, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Jesus lived the perfect life, perfect, spotless. He was the spotless Lamb of God. Now he himself, he, he's, he's struggling, he's in just emotional turmoil. And he asked the Father, if you're willing, take this cup for me, yet not my will but yours be done. He says, so I'm surrendering to you, Father. I know there's no other way for people to be right with me. I know that, there, that this will be the sacrifice, the one sacrifice that will end all other sacrifices. This is the sacrifice that will, that will open up the gates of heaven for people to come in. I know that this is the sacrifice. And Jesus says, yet not my will but yours be done. And then the Apostle Paul says in, eight, in Romans 8, 32, he says this. He says, he, meaning God, did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. There's these, these mentions in Genesis 22 about Isaac being the only son, the only son, the only son. And I believe there's a straight line between there and Jesus, in God's only Son. There's a straight line drawing us right to the gospel message. That what Abraham needed was, he needed the sacrifice. He, need, he just didn't know where it was going to come from, and God provided the ram in the thicket. And yet, we can lean upon the God who provides now. Abraham learned that the ram was there and that God was providing, and you and I need to live the rest of our days trusting in Jehovah Jireh, that he is a God who provides. If, you need, if you're in fellowship with him and you're in need of, of finances, I believe that he's still the God who provides. If you're in need of, of more faith, like you're just struggling in your faith, he's the, God who, he's, he's the God who gave you faith to begin with. He can help restore that faith. If, you, if you're in need of of some, some medical needs and some, some health issues, God will, God will be there to provide for that. I'm not saying that he's going to provide for you exactly what you want. You're going to be happy and healthy and wealthy. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is he'll provide you what you need. And he may not give you physical health, but he may give you spiritual health, which is more important than physical health. We can trust in Jehovah Jireh. Abraham got it. The Apostle Paul got it. John the Baptist got it. Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get that God's faithful? 
Do you get that God loves you? Do you get that, that on your worst day, his, his love never waned? And on your best day, he wasn't like so ecstatic and happy for you because you did well that day. His love is just overflowing and consistent. And he knows everything about you. And he loves you anyway. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides. He is the God that that we can trust when our faith gets tested. He is the God who, who says not only can you trust me when you're being tested, when your faith is being tested, but also you can know that there's a purpose to it. That with every testing, that you, you go through that suffering and you go through that testing that you learn and you, some part of you is chipped away where you learn perseverance. And some part of you is chipped away to where your, your character becomes more godly character. And part of that is chipped away and then eventually you, you well up with hope. And then we walk in hope. Because he is Jehovah Jireh. The God who provides. Let's pray together. I'm so thankful that this is true. That this wasn't made up by some man or woman. This was modeled, taught, experienced, and believed. And this truth has been passed down for generations this incredible truth about you God that you are the God who provides you provided a way for salvation you provide a way for us to change through sanctification you not only provide the path but you also provide the power to make that all happen And I speak on behalf of all of us, God. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for loving us when we were powerless, when we were dead in our sins. Through surrender, we became alive in you. We praise you, Jesus, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.